Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Harvard University is being sued over affirmative action. The charge is that it discriminates against Asian American students, makes it a disadvantage to be Asian American when applying to Harvard, and giving a leg up to African American students, for instance. I talked with Professor Randall Kennedy, who teaches law at Harvard as the Michael R. Klein Professor. He's an expert on things such as contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. He explained to me what this lawsuit is really about, why affirmative action is in dispute and has been in dispute in our country since at least 1866, and why he's in favor of affirmative action in favor of what he calls discrimination because, like every social policy, it comes with a cost. Toward the end of my conversation with him, I was struck by something he said about his own work, how he's had to revise his own interpretations of American culture and American politics in light of where we are today, 10 years after President Obama was first elected. The conversation was wide-ranging. It started with affirmative action, but touched on other issues, and how to achieve something like racial justice in this country. Really pleased to have Professor Randall Kennedy of Harvard Law School here today on the podcast, Think About It. So first of all, welcome, Professor Kennedy, and thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to speak with you. You not only teach law at Harvard, but you've also committed yourself to addressing some of the big controversial topics that we're living with in our times and that we've lived in in this country for a very long time. And you've written on different things, on racial politics, on interracial intimacy, on colorism, 
on the strange career of the N-word, on the idea of racial sellout. And then more recently, you've written several things, including a book on affirmative action called For Discrimination, Race, Affirmative Action, and the Law. And now, as we all know, yet another lawsuit has been deposited at your doorstep, Harvard College Office of Admissions, claiming that affirmative action just doesn't really work. Can you can you tell me what motivated you a couple of years ago to write this book on affirmative action, sort of what your thinking was, why you thought people should maybe have a more nuanced understanding of this concept? Well, sure. One of the things that I teach year after year are courses on race relations law and affirmative action and kindred policies have been at the forefront of controversy. So it was natural for me to try to set forth my analyses and prescriptions with respect to this subject. And you approach this in a comprehensive way, not only as a legal issue, but also as a political and policy question. And your book has quite some scope, so you reach back in time quite a bit and say that the idea of affirmative action isn't very modern, isn't the last 20 years or so, but it's been with us for quite some time. And before we get to sort of the current state of affairs, could you go back a bit and sort of explain how this concept has come about and what affirmative action was meant to do before we get to what is good or what is bad about it? Sure. Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that, as you indicated, throughout American history, there has been controversy about any and every effort to advance the fortunes of racial minorities. And this goes back to the abolition of slavery. I talk in my book about how, if you, let's take a look at the nation's first federal civil rights law. The nation's first civil rights law, federal civil rights law, was the Civil Rights Act of 1866. The Civil Rights Act of 1866 said essentially that all persons in the United States would have the same right as white persons to be witnesses, to sue and be sued, to own property, to enter into contracts. And what happened to that statute? That statute was vetoed by the president of the United States, Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Abraham Lincoln. You take a look at his veto message. What did Andrew Johnson say? Andrew Johnson said that this law was unfair, that this law gave what he called discriminating protection. That's exactly what he called it, discriminating protection to the newly freed slaves. He said, you know, white people never had a federal law that guaranteed them the right to enter into contracts and the like. So this was giving discriminating protection. He was making essentially a reverse discrimination claim against people who had just been released from slavery. So this is 1866. That's right. This and is 1866. It's, so it's a year after slavery is abolished, and the country is some people in the country are trying to figure out what to do with newly emancipated African-Americans, black Americans. And this Civil Rights Act is supposed to 
make sure that people actually get the rights that they have been now promised, but no one really knows how it's going to work because it's an unprecedented new situation in some states, right? That's true. I think the importance, the significance of the statute, of this controversy, is it, it indicates the importance of baselines. So there's a way in which President Johnson was correct. He said, listen, this hasn't been done before. And in a way, that was right. It didn't have to be done before, because before it was viewed as all right to expressly and openly discriminate against people on the basis of race. So in a way, that's right, something new, something different was being done to elevate this oppressed group. And whenever anything is being done to elevate oppressed groups, you have some people who say, who are resentful, and they say, oh, these people are getting something different. These people are getting a jump on me. Now, go forward a few decades. Well, let's stay with this for one moment here. Okay. In common parlance. So there's one way to look at it and say, we're just going to try to set the playing field level to sort of even out conditions because since many of these people have not had access to anything, had not had the same opportunities, couldn't sue in court, couldn't be sued, couldn't give testimony, couldn't enter into contracts, couldn't own property, etc., etc. So we'll just make sure that they have the same rights and responsibilities as all other citizens. So that's kind of to bring it to a neutral place when there was a disadvantage. But you're Yes, saying but Andrew Johnson is calling that what... He would be calling that in the 19th century affirmative action. He would be calling that reverse discrimination. The same sorts of sentiments that people mobilize now and say, you know, these black people are getting an unfair advantage. That's exactly the same thing as Andrew Johnson was trying to mobilize in 1866. So for 152 years, we've had the same argument that either this is a way to rectify things that have been wrong, this is one reason, or as Johnson says, this is actually unfair because it gives people something that other people don't have. And you're yes. Thinking, so that's fascinating. For 152 years, we've had the same struggle. Can you say something else about the motivation behind this kind of approach? It's not just to rectify. And we'll get into then, if you go, go where you want to go a couple decades ahead, it's to rectify for past wrongs or failures, let's say, that the state didn't give people certain rights. And now it's saying, we're going to make sure they have them now. That's right. I mean, you know, I think now many people would say, listen, it's obvious that Andrew Johnson was wrong back then because, you know, these people were just emerging from slavery. Obviously, you know, it was a bad thing to discriminate racially against people. So I think nowadays people would say, gosh, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was simply something intended to create a level playing field. That's not preferential treatment. I think that's the way many people would see it nowadays. And if we look at the decades after the Civil War, what is actually the condition for newly freed black Americans? Well, it varied, of course. I mean, you know, in the, in the first Reconstruction, there was a tremendous jump forward. I mean, you had black people who voted. You know, black people, for the first time in the, in the history of the United States, actually 
participated in government in the South. I mean, after all, the person who succeeded Jefferson Davis, Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy. The person who took his seat in the United States Senate was a black man, Hiram Revels, the first black person in Congress, took the seat of Jefferson Davis. So in the first Reconstruction, there was a tremendous jump forward on the part of blacks, but a lot of people felt resentful about that. A lot of people thought that, you know, people were bending over backwards to give these people preferential treatment, and there was a, ultimately a reaction against it, which put black people in a terrible position throughout the age of Jim Crow segregation and out-and-out out racial terrorism in many parts of the United States. Right. Now, so we go from a kind of, let's say, a sense that something needs to be done to level this playing field, to use this metaphor again, and then you're saying there's a backlash, and then we have both legislation and policies enacted that actually set people back and actually allow for what today we would consider overt discrimination. Yes. So the separate but equal, Jim Crow, the, the domestic terrorism, which is tolerated, not persecuted. So in some ways, you have decades then where actually it's a kind of stalemate, let's say. There's no neither affirmative action, but there's actually active discrimination. And then you said you wanted to go a couple decades forward. What are the next milestones in this 152 years of debate now about affirmative action? Well, we can go, we can, you know, get in a time machine, and let's go to the 1960s, because a lot of times people think that affirmative action is something that all of a sudden arose after the Civil Rights Movement, arose after the Second Reconstruction, but actually that's not true. Throughout the 1950s and the 1960s, there were skirmishes about what we now view as affirmative action. So Martin Luther King Jr., for instance, was in debates. Martin Luther King, you know, where he took the position, well, you know, black people have been held back, they've been pushed off to the side, they need a hand in order to bring them into the American mainstream. Well, there were a lot of people, including good people, by the way, including good people, who said no. That's not a good thing, because if they're given a hand up, that'll be preferential treatment. That'll be reverse discrimination. And Martin Luther King Jr. and other black people in the 1960s, you know, thought, thought about that. And there were pitched battles. You take a look at the New York Times. The New York Times, which now is a, you know, champion of affirmative action or champion of diversity. If you go back to the 1960s, the New York Times was very much against these sorts of what they view as special efforts to assist black people. They thought that special efforts to assist black people amounted to reverse discrimination. So, so how does this transition happen from a helping hand or providing opportunity, opening opportunity, to this is preferential, this is reverse discrimination? There seems to be pretty quick to go from we're going to encourage people to apply for jobs or to we're going to encourage students to come to these schools and move from not just desegregating but actually integrating to this is preferential and then this is reverse discrimination. Well, okay, so at one point you have people who say, okay, what we need to do is to give, make special efforts to assist, let's say, black students. 
Black students have been segregated. Black students have been excluded. Everybody knew that black students were not welcome at various institutions. Okay, so now we're, we're going to quit discriminating against these students. Okay? And then the champions of the black students say, well, that's nice, that's good, the door is open, but guess what? There are a lot of black students who are not going to apply because they've grown up believing that these institutions are out, out of their reach. They've grown up believing that these institutions actually do not welcome them, will not pay attention to them. So you've got to do more than simply not discriminate. You've got to affirmatively reach out. Well, you know, there were some people right then and there who said, uh-oh, we got a problem here. Because after all, if you affirmatively reach out to the black students, what about the poor white students? What about, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna affirmatively send a recruiter to Harlem to reach out, but you're not gonna send a recruiter to Appalachia to reach out? Right. And so there, there you have, you know, forget about test scores, just on this issue of reaching out, you have the beginnings of the fight over affirmative action. I can easily imagine somebody saying, for instance, it's unfair to send a recruiter to the black kids in Harlem, and you're not sending a recruiter to the white kids in, let's say, you know, Charleston, West Virginia. And here we are, it's roughly in the decade of the 60s when this is happening, and especially black students are pushing for black admissions officers, black recruiters, more direct, concerted efforts to show people this is also an institution open and available to you. The background is, of course, that many other kids were fully aware because their parents had gone there or they had recruiters already going to those high schools. So it's not there was no recruiters going out. They just had been going to only white high schools up to that point. Right? Yes, but I mean, you can have the affirmative action debate about many, many, many things. So, you know, let's imagine that, well, here's, here's another one. You have a school that has never had black students. And part of the reason you've never had black students, you know, you had a few black students who applied before, but you excluded them. But now you've decided, oh, that was a very bad thing. We want to do away with that past. We want to have a community that's open to all. How are we going to do that? Well, okay, so maybe we send out special recruiters. Okay, now, like I said a moment ago, you could have a fight about, well, is that fair? Then let's suppose you send out your special recruiters and you send your special recruiters to Harlem and you encounter a kid who is really very talented, very bright, but the kid has not, you know, he's gone to a school that's not as good, frankly, as some other schools. Maybe they're not kids who've you have very few kids from this school who've gone on to elite colleges. Maybe the kids' parents don't have much money. And so maybe your elite school says, well, not only are we going to send a special recruiter out, but because we've never had black students at our school, we are going to waive the admission fee. Now, we're not waiving the admission fee to the kid in uh, Scarsdale. 
We're not waiving the admissions fee to the kid on the Upper East Side who went to Brearley, but we're going to waive the admission fee to the kid in Harlem. Well, I mean, fair. You could, you could have a nice fight about that. In fact, you could have a fight just like we're having fights now. But then let's take it further. Let's imagine that the kid in Harlem that you've special recruiter, you've waived the fee, he applies, and lo and behold, there's a lot of impressive stuff. The teachers say this kid has overcome a lot. This kid is a really hardworking kid. He's got all the promise in the world. And you look at his test scores. And guess what? His test scores are a bit lower than the test scores of that kid in Scarsdale, the test scores of that kid on the Upper East Side, and maybe lower than the test scores of the poor white kid in Charleston, West Virginia. Now, what do we do? Do we say, well, sorry, kid in Har black kid in Harlem, we gave you an equal shot. It's just that your test scores are a little bit lower. Good luck. Right. Or do we say, you know what? We haven't had many black kids here. Maybe we haven't had any. We want to have some black kids here. We think, given our history, given the history of the United States, we think that we should make a special effort and that part of the special effort shouldn't be not only sending out the special recruiter, not only waiving the fee, but even though this kid's test scores are a little bit lower than the others, we are going to admit this kid. And by the way, we're not going to admit the kid from the Upper East Side. We're not going to admit the kid from, you know, the kid from West Virginia. The white kid from West Virginia. So you we're going to admit the we're going to admit the black kid from Harlem, and now we have a full out fight. Oh, you can't do that. That's lowering standards. That is preferential treatment. Oh, how unfair this is. Do you know you've identified a dilemma and one of the main reasons why people who are proponents of affirmative action would keep this up. So the dilemma is that. This seems really unfair, and the unfairness seems to center on not just someone's the background, the location where they're living, but this is a black kid and the other one is a white kid. So this mm -hmm. we're going to get to this, that this is what people really get hung up on. They say it's not just preferential toward a neighborhood or community, an area, but it's about race. Which yes. goes back to what President Johnson was opposed to in 1866. And the, you've given us one reason now. Say the university, some university, the school wants to admit more students because they haven't done so in the past and they felt that was probably wrong and they were probably the wrong reasons why black students couldn't come to this. There was discrimination, there was racism, but we want to change that. What's another reason why they would want to bring this kid from Harlem now and instead of just keeping all the kids who have been always going to these schools? So an additional argument made for the benefit of affirmative action. Well, I, I want to stick with the first justification. Yeah. Because nowadays, by the way, you don't hear the justification that I've been talking about. In fact, not only do you not hear it, but the justification that I have focused upon, that is to say, making amends for the past, compensatory justice, that justification has been ruled illicit by the Supreme Court of the United States. 
That's why nowadays, like, you know, this lawsuit at Harvard, what does Harvard say? What do all these schools say? They don't talk about trying to, you know, bind the racial wounds of our country. They don't talk about slavery, segregation. They don't talk about the injustices of the past. I think they ought to. I think it's a perfectly honorable, I think it's a perfectly sensible, and by the way, I think that that's what's really going on. But they don't talk that way. What they say is what's allowed now under current law is for the universities to say, we want this black kid from Harlem because we think that the presence of this black kid from Harlem will make our scholarly slash intellectual environment at our college better. This kid from Harlem can, you know, tell the kid from Nebraska all about urban living and all about the particular, you know, perspectives and experiences that black kids face in Harlem. And that kid, the you know, the white kid from Nebraska will learn something from that. And presumably, by the way, the same is true. The kid from Harlem will learn about milking cows or whatever it is from the white kids. This is the argument that there's an inherent benefit to diversity. And then the people will extend this very quickly to say it's better problem solving. You can build a better proverbial mousetrap if you have a diverse team of people approaching it from different angles, different backgrounds, different experiences. To go back to the first part of compensatory justice, this idea that an institution, and this is interesting, your work has focused a lot on higher education, that somehow universities should be in the business of making up for past wrongs, that they should approach something like reparations for groups of people who've been discriminated against or disadvantaged and barred from such institutions. And you're saying this is, in your view, legitimate, acceptable, correct. How does it figure legally? I mean, you're speaking as a law professor. Why does the law, as you're saying today, kind of drop that argument out and doesn't really want to address that anymore? Yes. Well, I mean, the key case in which this was, I mean, there was a person, Louis F. Powell, was the swing, was all important in the Bakke case in the 1970s. So give me the outline of that case, right? This was a case in which the University of California at Davis Medical School had a class. I think it had 100 seats for people who wanted to be doctors. Uh, you know, here's a medical school that has 100 seats. And there had been very few black people or Latino people who had gone to this school. The school felt bad about it. The school said, you know, here we are. We are a public university. We're trying to provide the nation, and more particularly, provide California with doctors. And we've got just a very small number of Latino doctors, very small number of black doctors. We want to have more. So they actually set aside seats. I think they set aside 16 seats. And they said, listen, for these 16 seats, we're going to have a preference for racial minorities who are poor. That was sort of an interesting thing. It wasn't just racial minorities, it was poor racial minorities. And they said, okay, for these 16 seats, poor racial minorities, you know, we're really going to focus on those folks for these 16 seats. Well, there was a white guy, Alan Bakke, he wanted to be a doctor, and he didn't get in. 
And he said, listen, um, I want to be a doctor. My test scores and my grade point average, my test scores are higher than some of these people who've gotten in. And that's not fair. And, you know, and if I was black, if I was Latino, I certainly would have gotten in. The only reason I'm not in is because I'm white. So he sued. Right. The Supreme Court of the United States was split right down the middle on this. And what Lewis Powell said, Lewis Powell said what the University of California Davis did was invalid. Why was it invalid? It was invalid for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons he said it was invalid, he says what they were up to was sort of, you know, reparative justice. They were trying to do something about societal discrimination. And he said, you know, who are they to do that? That's not what they should be up to. And tell me why the university, so this is the Baki cases when the court basically says compensatory or reparative justice shouldn't be used. Why would the university think that it could correct the ills of society? In American well, culture of all, because in other countries, affirmative action doesn't play itself out in higher education. It's in employment usually or political appointments. But why are universities thinking we could do something right that this country hadn't done right until now? I think it's because, frankly, many institutions in American life were rightly of the belief that everybody should pitch in wherever they are. So, I mean, frankly, this happened with police departments. It happened with respect with fire departments. It happened in lots of different contexts. I think it happened with individuals. I think that there was a deep feeling that finally we recognize that terrible things have happened. We recognize that there continues to be injustice in American life. Some people get very little. Some people get a whole lot. Race has a lot to do with that. I think, you know, what can we do to help this country get over the hump? Mm -hmm. And there were lots of institutions, private and public, that were saying that and were basically on their own trying to do whatever they could in their particular context to bind the racial wounds of America. And what Lewis Powell basically said was, well, I don't like that. I mean, after all, how long is that going to go on? You know, will there be any end to that? And the interesting thing is, Lewis Powell... We know this now because of things that he told people at the time, because of, you know, memoranda that he wrote. He was very concerned about, well, what will be the stopping place at this? What will be? He wanted to figure out a theory that would be more temporary and that would be more limited. But that's and interesting. The, You've written about this. The current court, Justice O'Connor in 2003, also said there has to be a horizon for this, even if we are going to have this idea of affirmative action, which, as you will say, from Baki gets very much changed. There's a horizon. This is a sunset clause. At some yes. point, the country has to work it out on its own. We cannot let institutions then take action anymore. Yeah, and the great irony is that Lewis Powell turns against redistributionist ideas. He turns against reparative justice ideas. And instead, he fashions this notion 
partly because of Harvard. I mean, Harvard submitted a very influential brief, which was crafted by, oh, the man who was the first special prosecutor. We'll look it up afterwards. It'll come to me. I can't believe it. But Harvard basically said, listen, we have an admissions policy which takes race into account, but it doesn't just take race into account. It takes geography into account. It takes interest into account. We, you know, we take lots of different things into account to try to create a varied, diverse student body. Mm-hmm. In fact, Lewis Powell dropped a footnote and he lauded Harvard and said, yeah, this is what you should be doing. But the great irony is that diversity has no sunset. I mean, presumably, an institution will always want a diverse student body. So there's no sunset with that. Right. And that is actually what has occurred. I mean, most selective universities now talk about how they want a diverse student body so that, by the way, the man's name was, I can't believe, Archibald Cox. Okay. It was the great Archibald Cox who crafted a uh, brief on behalf of Harvard University that Lewis Powell, Justice Lewis Powell, embraced. And the great irony is, of course, that that idea is now being tested and challenged in court. So is this amicus brief filed by Harvard in the early 1970s, is this what gives rise to this idea that there can be a holistic review where race... Absolutely. So race is one of many categories. Basically, a student is made up of all these different parts, and this is one important part, but not the decisive one. So universities say... We're going to use race, but the court says, but you must not use it as the exclusive criteria. You can use it if it informs your holistic picture. So then we go through these other cases. So there's then Fisher and then Grutter, so other big cases where we have again and again really motivated white students who are saying, this is not fair. I applied, someone else applied, we have the same scores. And they'd say, this score should be the only thing. There's a whole discussion your colleague Lani Guinea wrote a book on the idea that the SAT does not predict actually right. success in school. It actually predicts family income and zip code. It doesn't predict whether you're going to do well or not in school. But so you have several more cases. So where does this holistic idea end up? Why doesn't the court just leave it at that and say the universities have you know some prerogative to decide who they want to admit and to build their class? And we'll allow them to use race as one of several categories. Well, a lot of people do. I mean, there's several justices who have said just that. And there are many people who would be quite happy to do exactly what you're just suggesting. But I'm going to ask you one more question, Brother Kennedy, before we move on. So Alan Bakke. So Alan Bakke doesn't get into UC Davis. He does. Hopefully he gets in ultimately. So he gets to be a doctor. Hopefully he became a great doctor. So what would you say to an Alan Bakke and say, yeah, it's not totally fair. Yes, someone else got in, but fairness isn't really... Um, zero-sum game in this case, but there are other considerations. How would you respond to say, yes, there's some kind of sifting in place or discrimination and someone else gets in, you don't get in, but that is tolerable. Yes. Here's what I'd say to Alan Bakke. I'd say, Mr. Bakke, listen, I understand we, you know, all of us have one life to live. We're ambitious. We want what we want. So I understand why it is that you want to get this last space. I understand it. And I'm really sorry that we're operating under conditions of scarcity and there's only one last space. 
One thing that maybe we should think about is, could we change things around a bit so that we're not so hemmed in with respect to scarcity? I mean, you know, maybe one thing that we might want to think about is, you know, are we so sure that we only have to have 100 seats? We need more doctors. Maybe we should think about public policy such that we build another medical school so that, you know, we have 100 new seats. What about that? We certainly waste right. a lot of money. We certainly do stupid things with the resources that we have. Maybe we should think about rejiggering our resources so that we can pour more resources to something as valuable as getting more doctors. But putting that to the side, because that's not going to help you right now. Even if we were to build another medical school, another medical school wouldn't come about for, let's say, five years. You want to know what about tomorrow. So I understand. So let me answer you directly. Mr. Baki, you are part of America, right? Yeah. You benefit from many of the good things in America, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, Mr. Baki, in the same way that you benefit, the same way that you get various goodies, you have certain obligations. You are part and parcel of a project that was going on, that was around before you showed up, and you are going to have to help out with this racial problem that we have. Now... It may very well be that you are frustrated and yet you don't get this last seat. And I understand that it's very frustrating. And by the way, Mr. Baki, if you can show me that the authorities excluded you from this seat with any animus, with any prejudice, with any effort to put you down because of your race, if there was any hint that they excluded you from that last seat because they said, what the hell, we don't, we, this guy is, you know, a white guy and we don't want a white guy. If that's what there was up, I'm on your side and they ought not be allowed to do that. But if they said, listen, we got this racial problem, these Latino kids, these black kids, they've been kept out. We got to change things around. And a collateral consequence of that, a collateral consequence of that is that you don't get that last seat. I say to you, I see why you're frustrated. Life is tough, but nothing wrong has been done to you. And by the way, let me push this a little bit further, because I've said this because I have Asian-American students, and we've talked about this vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, Asian-Americans. And, and, you know, they'll say to me, you know, listen, my people, my people didn't have anything to do with putting your people in slavery, with putting your people in, you know, at the back of the bus with Jim Crow. What the hell? When, you know, my people were being dealt with very badly in California by, you know, anti-Asian racism. So I feel for you, Kennedy, but, you know, my people didn't put you back. So... You know, I don't have, you know, you shouldn't be taking anything from me. And what I say to them is, listen, my people, my black people, didn't have anything to do with putting Japanese Americans in camps in World War II. 
They didn't have anything to do with rounding Japanese Americans up. They didn't have anything to do with putting Japanese Americans in camps. They didn't have nothing to do with that. And that was a terrible thing. And when decades later, the Congress of the United States finally, belatedly said, this is a terrible thing, we should apologize and we should pay reparations to Japanese Americans. I did not say, hey, I didn't, you know, my people didn't have anything to do with that. No, I said, this is a good thing. And if I'm taxed to pay reparations, you know, I don't want to be, you know, who wants to be taxed, but I think it's a good thing for the United States to pay reparations under those circumstances. The fact of the matter is, we are all part of this nation. This nation faces a variety of challenges, and we are all, in various circumstances, going to be asked to do our part. And what I say to, you know, white kids is, you are being asked to do your part. You are not being discriminated against. So you're saying, first of all, every social policy comes with a certain cost for some people. Yes. Then you said it cannot be, must not be, should not be that anybody is discriminated against on purpose, with intent, on a kind of basis of the government discriminating directly against a racial group. So you're saying if Mr. Baki or Fisher or any of those people would be sort of singled out and said, we don't like your group, that you would not at all accept Absolutely. or tolerate. Absolutely, totally against that, yes. But every social policy comes with a cost. And then you're saying something larger. Say, we all are in this together. This is America. We have to get through this the best we can. And sometimes there will be costs to bear for everyone to advance. Right? Absolutely. Let me take up on that. So, for instance, I have friends. I have black friends. For your audience, I'm black. And I have black friends. And, you know, black people, it's not like all black people agree about affirmative action. I mean, I have friends who are against, black friends who are against affirmative action. And I've had black friends say to me, you know, one reason why I'm against affirmative action is because affirmative action puts something of a cloud over my achievements. There are people who say, well, you know, you only got this position or you only got this prize or because of affirmative action. And I've had friends, black friends, who've said, you know, I feel badly about that. It cheapens my achievement. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I say to them is, you know what, you too have to pitch in. Every time I teach at Harvard Law School on the very first day of class, I teach contracts. When I go to my contracts class on that very first day, I'm certain that there are students in the audience who are saying to themselves, hmm, this Kennedy guy, is he a real Harvard Law School professor? Or do I put an asterisk next to him? Is he an affirmative action Harvard Law School professor? I know there's a certain number of students who are thinking that. Now, you know, my attitude towards that is, well, I understand that they're thinking that. And, you know, that comes with a cost for me. But, again, we are all—there is no social policy— 
that is costless. Mm -hmm. Whether we're talking about taxes, whether we're talking about the highway system, whether we're talking about, you know, public transportation, I don't care what you do, there's going to be costs. Affirmative action does have costs, but I would say that if we take a look over the last 50 years, it seems to me it should be very clear that affirmative action has had many more benefits than costs. And for that reason, I have been a consistent, strong defender of affirmative action. And so you're saying this idea of it's stigmatizing people or somewhat lessening their achievements, you're saying mm -hmm. it's a possibility? You said you can't control what people think in your class? Yeah, they may think that, they may not think that. The other part is I'm wondering when you're talking about this experience of being in the class, if the court got rid of affirmative action next spring, for good, forever, outlawed it, was the most terrible thing we ever thought of, and now it's all going to just be completely neutral and people just compete for themselves. Do you think those kinds of attitudes would go away? No. Interestingly enough, so, you know, again, to go back to an earlier part of our conversation, I said that many of the things that we're talking about now, we often think about as being so au courant. These are new, but they're not new at all. If you take a look at Jackie Robinson. I was just reading a wonderful book about Jackie Robinson. Question, what did people say about black baseball players before Jackie Robinson broke the color line with Major League Baseball? What was the justification given for there being no black baseball players in white Major League Baseball? You know what the answer was? The black players are not good enough. That is what was said. Truly, that is what was said. And what did people say about the few black students at Harvard Law School before the mid-1960s. Well, you know, you'd have black, very few, but you'd have some, and they wouldn't get any jobs mm. after they graduated from Harvard Law School. All the white kids would, you know, have job offers, but black kids would not, no matter how well they did. No, they're not good enough. Okay. The fact of the matter is that blackness has been stigmatized in American life in all sorts of ways. So in the affirmative action context, you know, part of the stigma has to do with the logic of affirmative action, but part of the stigma has to do with blackness. And, you know, again, my view would be that racism in American life has so many layers. It goes so deeply that it will take lots of different policies, lots of different actions. It will take lots of different modes of thought to push us further. And let me say this, because we've been talking about affirmative action throughout most of this conversation, I want to tell your audience, I think affirmative action is important, but you know, affirmative action isn't everything. Affirmative action is not everything. And in fact, in my view, if somebody came up to me and said, Kennedy, I'll strike a grand bargain with you. I really don't like affirmative action. So I'm willing to strike the following bargain with you. 
We do away with affirmative action in higher education, all of higher education. And in return, so you give up that, and in return, I will give you excellent, and I mean excellent, underlined exclamation point. I will give you excellent K through 12 public schooling throughout the United States of America. You take will, it. You take, will it. You take that bargain. I would take that bargain immediately. Right. So you're saying affirmative action is one tool in the toolkit and one it's, measure that is not going to solve every problem. But you're saying there are many other, for example, as you're saying, many students don't even ever get to this chance or opportunity to go to one of these competitive colleges, but they're completely underserved in secondary education. Absolutely. In fact, if I had a criticism of myself, one criticism I have, and I think, frankly, that our conversation in a way shows it, we've been talking about affirmative action in higher education. Affirmative action in higher education only applies to selective universities. There are not that many selective universities in the United States. We are only talking about maybe a couple of hundred schools. Maybe we're talking about maybe 300 schools right. in all of the United States. We're not talking about all those other colleges. We're not talking about community colleges. None of what we have been talking, nothing of what we've been talking about really has much pertinence to all of those kids who don't even make it through high school. I mean, frankly, if you are a plausible candidate for a selective university, you are doing pretty good. You made it pretty much right. You, exactly. Absolutely. I mean, frankly, if you don't get in to, let's say, Princeton, what the heck? You're sure you're going to get in someplace good? Right. And so, in a way, the whole affirmative action, I think, frankly, that the affirmative action struggle, it shows us a couple of things. One, and I think this is, for me, one of the most disturbing features you mean to tell me that people are up in arms about something that is this marginal? We're not talking about a lot of people here. We really aren't. We're not talking about a lot of people. Yet, if we take a look at print in newspapers, if we take a look at newscasts, if we take a look at just discussions, if we take a look at court cases, if we take a look at what has gripped the you know, jurisprudential imagination of the United States, all focused on this rather elite thing. I think we should be asking, well, you know, what about the kids in Appalachia? What about, you know, white kids? And what about the black kids in Detroit? What are we going to do for them? Right. Much more attention needs to be spent on those fronts, as far as I'm concerned. So why do you think the public seizes and fastens on these moments, which, as you're saying, concern very few people in very particular strange circumstances? <laughs> it's already a strange idea to sort of be considered for admissions to one of the top colleges in the world. And 
why does the country then respond for 152 years and doesn't say, well, there's probably a larger problem and what you're saying, maybe education needs to be fixed. Maybe we need to work on those policies. Maybe there's... Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I think that's a good question. A couple of hypotheses come to mind. One, these institutions that we've been talking about They are the celebrity institutions, and we are in a celebrity culture, and just like people fasten their imaginations around the Kardashians, people fasten their imaginations around Harvard. You know, I think that, frankly, this has an outsized imprint on the American imagination. I think people are way too occupied by this. That's one thing. Another thing, darker, much darker, I began my conversation by saying that, you know, there's the problem of resentment. Frankly, my sense is that whenever we're talking about any policy that is going to advance the interests of racial minorities, There is a certain racist resentment that kicks in. We saw it with the New Deal. Yeah. The New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt. Hey, you know, we need to do something about poor people. Well, let's do something about poor people. And what did the Southern racist senators say? Yeah, let's do something about poor people, but we can't do anything to help out these poor black people. And so they basically excluded them from the benefits of the New Deal. Now, in our own time, I've seen it. You know, people, if there's nothing, if you don't have race in there, if we're not talking about race, things are going along all right. right. But then somebody says, hey, see over there? It looks like those black people are getting something. Oh, and then all hell breaks loose. And I think that's a part and parcel of our racial problem, frankly. One of your books you've written, you wrote shortly, I think, before the election of President Obama. Now it's nine, ten years later. Where are we in the country right now? If you're saying that there is some strong resentment about people looking at this and saying this is completely outrageous that black students have a leg up at Harvard admissions, which is what the case is about. And yeah. Asian Americans are explicitly being discriminated against and disadvantaged, which is what the case is about. We'll see how this all plays out. But do you think 12 years ago there was a different attitude? or no, Because you wrote before the election of Obama how people perceive him, and now you're saying there's still this kind of anxiety in America. Wow, this group of African Americans are getting something extra. <laughs> you know... I feel very chastened. I'm writing now a number of pieces and I'm having to revise things I've written in the past. And I say this with deep regret and deep sorrow. I had underestimated the extent to which racial resentment, the extent to which racial animus is part of American life. I thought that the election of Obama really did signal that the country had outgrown certain deep-seated tendencies. Well, I was wrong. The reaction against Obama 
which frankly, I think that I'm 64 years old. I suspect now that for the rest of my life, I will be engulfed in the continuing reaction against Obama. A black family in the White House obviously unhinged much of America. Right. Now, not all of America, not all of America. I mean, you know, Barack Obama, a predominantly white electorate, twice put a black man in the White House. So that, you know, we can't forget that. So that's an important thing, a very important thing. At the same time, it's also important to notice, it seems to me, that there were a lot of people who were absolutely unhinged by that. Yes. And it's had all sorts of ramifications in American life. And I think we're going to be dealing with this for a long time to come. In the specific case of affirmative action, what would you say to people today? What is the best way to make an affirmative, a productive argument in favor of it and not immediately get trapped into these defensive postures of it's not reverse discrimination, it's not unfair? What would you say to the students that you're dealing with? Or I have to say, Professor Kenny, I look forward to reading you because I've read you for so many years. And I do think the fact that you're saying you have to revise some things you've said, I don't know how to say it right. It's not anyone's fault it's where the country is right now and yeah and so in some ways i think what's important to do the work right now is to explain to people where is this country what is a majority opinion i think the media distorts certain things because of social media but where would you give people some sense of okay this is where to make a constructive and productive argument i think one thing that has to be done is we've got to be more candid hmm. One of the problems for my side, again, I'll say my side, the proponents of affirmative action, in order to defend affirmative action, the proponents of affirmative action have felt that they had to actually adopt yeah. the thinking and the language and the lingo of Justice Powell and the Supreme Court such that You know, people, frankly, the universities, you know, notice they don't talk about affirmative action anymore. Right. What is their word? Their word is diversity. Diversity, diversity, and diversity, diversity, diversity. And they talk about, you know, they set forth a pedagogical hypothesis. This will be good for our classes. This will be good for the overall environment of the school. And I think there's something to that. But frankly, I don't think that that... That certainly was not what was pushing affirmative action back in the 60s and 70s. And frankly, I don't think that that's really at the heart of it now. But people speak as if it is. And so nowadays, we're shadow boxing. To tell you the truth, I mean, I've been in many, I have been in many public forums talking with school officials, and they are speaking double speak because they feel that they can't speak frankly and by the way the enemies of affirmative action have picked up on this yes they picked up on this and they accuse the proponents of affirmative action of insincerity of being inauthentic 
of just making up stuff. And unfortunately, they do have a point because the proponents of affirmative action have felt like they couldn't be honest. But I think this is, this is your contribution, which is so important that you've titled your book for discrimination and you said it is a part of public policy, could be a part of legal action, and it comes with some costs. And the yes. illusion or the fantasy that it doesn't come with any cost. And you're saying this still doesn't mean that it's easy to pick winners and losers or that you can pit groups against one another, but to be forthright and direct and say there are costs, but many programs have costs and we just have to weigh them. I think that is more productive, as you're saying. I think the hiding behind sort of an idea, oh, it's good for everybody, and then not to really get to the, the difficult cases left people in the public thinking, well, we don't really know what this is about. This doesn't seem fair. Let's just get rid of it. Yeah, it comes up in various contexts. So, for instance, I've been in settings in which people have said to black students, you, you are just as, you know, prepared as any of your white colleagues who are here at, you know, whatever school we're talking about. Don't let anybody tell you differently. And we'll be talking about affirmative action and they'll make that sort of statement. And I'll say, hey, listen, couple things. Number one, if that's true, why do we need affirmative action? I mean, if you're making a special effort to assist someone, that presupposes that they need special assistance. So there's no shame. Here again, I think see, the pro-affirmative action forces have been put on the defensive. There is no shame in saying no, actually, I'm not as well prepared as my white colleague over here from Scarsdale or the kid who went to this, you know, Bronx high school or the special high school or whatever. No, I'm no, no. On day one, I'm not as well prepared. They are ahead of me. There is no shame in saying that. I have told many students, listen, it's not what you say on day one. <laughs> Fine. On day one, so-and-so is better prepared than you. So-and-so had better scores than you. So-and-so knows more than you. Recognize that. That's okay. No shame with that. And you work hard, and you make up the difference. It's not day one. It's what, what do you say on day 365? Right. And, you know, no shame. But I think what happens is, I think that, you know, anti-affirmative action forces have been very successful in making the pro-affirmative action forces be insincere, speak a language that does not actually say what's on their minds, and has made some people, frankly, be um, you know, ashamed. Yeah. And uh, ought not be. I'm learning a lot just listening to you, and I really want to say I really appreciate that you're making this strong, forceful case for affirmative action that doesn't neglect, slide over, deny some of the more difficult aspects. I think what you're saying, it has to be candid and has to be honest and cannot be in any way sugarcoat anything. I think that's very important. 
I want to really thank you for being on the podcast, Professor Kennedy. And I very much hope that we'll be hearing a lot more from you and that I can have you back at some point to talk about another topic. Love to come back. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye.